Today on the Central Baptist Podcast, Tom Cowan looks at the heart of the Ten Commandments and why they matter in modern life. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message. I know that many of you are readers. You like stories of maybe murder. People like P.D. James, who's one of my favorite writers from England. Stories of intrigue, history, war, romance. You know where you'll find some of the best stories? In the Old Testament. You really will. And I know you will know the story of the walls of Jericho. The army marched around the walls day after day for six days. And then the seventh day, they marched around seven times with blowing trumpets, and the walls fell. It makes a great song. I was going to try to sing it this morning with the quiet eye. Don't. Let's not go there. But hidden behind that story, there's another story of a defeat. You see, Israel was moving into the new land, and she had to conquer a number of these fortress cities. Jericho is now gone. The next fortress city is called Ai. Much smaller, much less fortified. And so they just assumed that after the wake of victory in Jericho, as we would say, Ai will be a piece of cake. But the Israelite army is routed, sent running away with their tail between their legs. And Joshua, the Israelite commander, is, is frankly more than puzzled. And so he starts an interrogation to find out what caused this defeat. And it comes down to a man who disobeyed an order not to plunder. The man's name is Achan. He stole some things that he should not have stolen. Some gold and silver, we can understand that. And he stole a coat, which is kind of like the latest fashion. And he hit them in, his, in the ground under his tent. So it says, Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Tell me what you've done. And don't hide it from me. Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold thing weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. And I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with a silver underneath. You see, you usually have to hide what you steal. So we come this morning to the last word from God, the final warning from God, that we're to be a people who understands and recognizes this deadly disease called greed. The desire for what is bigger and better is both seductive and psychotic. So we're told we're actually ordered by God not to covet. Here's the 10th final word. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male or female servant, his ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But we know that this, our contemporary culture, especially here in North America, is plagued with the passion to possess. 
And so it plunges families into financial crisis. Credit, mortgages, our future, as money we do not have is already committed. The inflation we have been experiencing is a devastating impact on many households. This past week, after the latest Bank of Canada rate increase, a report followed that said 22% of families said that they are now out of money. They simply have nothing left. Christmas season is just behind us. As someone said, people buy what they cannot afford to impress people that they don't like. Those little plastic cards become like large shovels that dig holes for us deeper and deeper. The television commercial, the flyers that come into our homes and apartments every week, they are not there to give us information, folks. They're there really to seduce us. And their message is, happiness that we want will be found in buying these things. They tease us by saying, the pleasure we're looking for for our lives is to be found in what we do not already have. So I hope that we've seen that these 10 words from God cut across the grain of our society. They challenge us to think in ways that our culture does not think. They call us to go against the current of popular philosophy. This perhaps more true of this final word of concoveting than anything else. In the 1960s, there was a couple called Francis and Ethel Schaefer. Any of you remember their names? Mm, a few of you do, not too, too many. They moved to Switzerland, established a ministry in a, in a little village called Wimay. And they were trying to help young people who were wandering across Europe, trying to find themselves, get rooted in God, get rooted in God's word. They made a very, very important impact. One that actually still goes on around the world right now. Do you know that there's a, their center was called Labri, which is French for the shelter. There is a Labri in Victoria. Did you know that? Did you know that? No, there is one. Look it up. Labrie in Victoria. And in one of, Francis Schaeffer wrote many, many books. They're philosophical, they're theological. But in one of her books, Edith Schaeffer calls this word of coveting. Catch this phrase. She says, it is the inside of the cup. What this means is that people can see what we steal. They can hear us when we lie. They see us when we cheat. These are visible. But she says, coveting is where our heart is. It does not expose what we're doing wrong. Rather, it exposes what we desire. And the ultimate price of coveting does not lie in what we purchase. What our credit card bill says at the end of the month. The deadly cost of greed lies in what it does to our heart. And the Bible follows for us, spells out these dangers of coveting. About the dangers that come from a greedy lifestyle. Here's some things that come straight from scripture. First of all. It chokes out the life-changing influence of the word of God. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about different kinds of soil that illustrate what happens when the good seed, which is the seed of the kingdom, falls. Hard ground becomes ideas that are fixed and flexible. Shallow ground means initial enthusiasm that falls away. Rocks and weeds where lives are way too busy. Verse 19 of Mark 4. But the worries of this world the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in and choke out the word of God, making it unfruitful. 
It also leads to the scriptures to spiritual danger. It puts us in danger. Paul writes to young Timothy, a pastor. People, he says, who want to get rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many into foolish and harmful desires that plunge men and women into ruin and destruction. For, he says, the love of money, in Greek that's all one word, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It leads to conflict between people. From the book of James, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, you don't get it. So you kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. When there's an argument in a family, especially over a will, when someone dies, you follow the money. It, it stifles and suffocates the love of God in us. John says to his, his little epistle, do not love the world or anything in the world. For anything, if anyone loves the world, he says the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that is in the world, the cravings of sinful men, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but it comes from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. We are told that smoking is dangerous to your body. I think it was in 1984 when we lived in Victoria here. I got a call at 2 o'clock in the morning. And it was from my mother. Who told me that my father had died suddenly of a heart attack in Scotland. So I flew back home the next day. Isn't that interesting? We've been here 55 years, and I still talk about flying home. This is not a sermon against smoking, but I will tell you, my dad has smoked all his life. I hardly ever saw him when I was growing up without a cigarette. So when I went back to Scotland, I talked to his doctor, and he said to me, Tom, although he had stopped smoking maybe a few years earlier, he said to me, the damage was done because his lungs were black. Coveting is even more deadly to our soul. Coveting kills. It stains what Edith Schaefer calls the inside of the cup. That means our heart. So what is the antidote to this cancer of the heart? What is the remedy to this psychotic lifestyle that plunges us deeper and deeper into debt financially, robs us emotionally of peace, bankrupts us spiritually. The Bible has an antidote. It calls us to live a life that's rooted in a rare spiritual truth. And that is simply contentment. Contentment. Contentment does not mean that we sit back and become some kind of couch potato. Rather, it is a state of the heart and mind that understands that meaning and worth does not come from buying more things. Our satisfaction does not come from what we have. The seductive voice of materialism says, if you only had this, you would be happier. Your life would be much more meaningful. Os Ganesh, a British philosopher, theologian, says, this is the first generation to have so much to live with and so little to live for. So we need the insight and the courage 
to look into that kind of thinking and say, that's a lie. Things do not create a meaningful life. And the Bible calls us to climb beyond the view of life, the view of life which is created by advertising, promised by credit cards. It invites us to breathe the air at a higher level, to experience really the pure oxygen of contentment. The Apostle Paul had breathed this kind of air. He lived at this altitude. He says to the Philippians, I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul wrote to a young pastor called Timothy. He says to him, godliness with great content, with contentment, is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So what does that mean for us? Let me outline this morning for you three vital areas of life in which we can practice this biblical discipline of contentment in, contra in contrast to the thinking of our culture. I would say to you this morning this, I will be content with who I am and that will allow me to develop who God has made me to be to the fullest extent. But first of all, I will be content with who I am. Perhaps the first and the most basic level of contentment we need to come to is to be content with who we are, who God has made us to be. I've talked to you many times about being made in the image of God. I believe deeply that's what makes us unique in the sense that our lives, each one of our lives, is stamped with the stamp of God. Each of us is one of a kind. God does not create Xerox copies. And we need to recognize that humbly and rejoice in that deeply. Does that mean we just sit back and coast? Not at all. We are responsible to discover every aspect and every fiber of our lives about who God has made us to be and to develop that to the very fullest. You remember a scene from Chariots of Fire, 1981? The story of the Scottish runner Eric Little, who is also a missionary. You remember he says, I think it's in the scene when he's running along the beach, the sand, he's, in the, he's just in the water. Remember what he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Think for a moment. Let me ask you, do you feel God's pleasure in your life? Because you take hold of who he has made you to be. I think we need to acknowledge that many of us, if not all of us, live below par. We live less than God intended us to be. But we need to be content in who God has made us. And yet along with that, have a holy discontent about where we are in that process. We're not here to be passengers. We're not here just to go with the flow. 
The New Testament is full of pictures taken from the world of sports, challenging us to press on, to run the race, to be like a boxer. But we're not trying to get ahead of other people. We're competing against our own laziness, our own sluggishness, the attitude that finds it so easy to drift along without effort. Today's word for many people is just whatever. Whatever. Who cares? We're not trying to be someone else. We're trying to be all that God wants us to be. I will tell you honestly this morning in the many, many years I've been a pastor now, I struggled for a long time in those early 10, 15 or so years because I was trying to be an evangelist. I gave altar calls and no one came. I tried to preach the gospel and somehow it didn't impact people's lives. And then I realized that I was simply made by God to be a pastor teacher. And I settled in that. I began to understand that. I began to be content with that. And people came to Christ and were baptized. That's who God has made me to be. When I discovered that, I stopped fighting it and settled down. Where are you in your life in that process? To that, I would add, I will be content with what I do. And that will enjoy me to enjoy, that will allow me to enjoy what I do to the fullest. You know, there's, there's no perfect jobs. Someone will always make more money than we do. They'll always have more prestige, a bigger office, or whatever. If we think that contentment will come only as we climb the ladder of success, we may find the ladder leaning against the wrong wall. Contentment comes by realizing with gratitude the skills and gifts that God has given to us and then using them to the fullest. I, I think the people who are unhappy in their work, whatever their jobs may be, and the people who are doing just enough to get by or who look busy only when the, the boss is there, that's a tragedy. The book of Colossians says to us, whatever you do, do it heartily. The Greek word means do it from the soul. Do it from your insides. Put everything you are into that. And you do it for the Lord and not for men. Contentment comes when we work from the heart. We work from the inside. That kind of contentment does not deny us the opportunity for a promotion or to get ahead or moving to a new line of work or take more training and advance ourselves. Not at all. In fact, inner contentment may encourage and stimulate us to do all of these things. But we do so with the honest realization that the promotion will not make us happier per se. The new job will not bring us contentment per se. Rather, contentment comes from within who we are. I'll tell you honestly this morning, I am, I am one of the happy, lucky people in life. Because I've been able to do what I love. And I love what I do. Some people would say I have the hardest job in the world. No, I don't. I think there's people who get jobs a lot harder than me. One of our neighbors some time ago was a prison guard. Always had to watch his back. Sometimes got beaten up. 
and come home to take days off. I think that's hard work. I'll be honest with you, some days what I've had to do has been hard work. Some of the things and some of the situations that I've had to do and deal with have moved me to tears. I remember one day I had to bury a little baby who died of crib death. SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. I went with the hearse and the family up to the graveside. Nobody wanted to carry the little white coffin that was this size. So I carried it. And I carried it up to this dark slit in the ground. And I knelt down and I put it in. I came home and I cried. Harry just held on to me for a while. And I just cried. Some things have given me a heavy heart. Teenagers who've committed suicide. And I'll also tell you that some things have given me the greatest joy. When someone realizes, as we were singing and commenting this morning, when we are loved and we are forgiven. When someone comes to realize that they're made in the image of God, that God loves them for all that they are, something inside me just leaps and rejoices in that. They really do. Some people say if they had to live their lives all over again, they wouldn't change a thing. I think that's really stupid. I mean, are you going to tell me that you will make the same mistakes all over again? When we lived in Toronto, I once bought a 63 Pontiac that turned out to be a real lemon. I would not do that again. There are some mistakes I would not want to repeat. But there are some things that I would do over again. I will tell you that. I would marry Harriet all over again. I really would. I'd want the same, the same kids. And I would serve God in the church again. I'd do some things differently because I made some mistakes. But I would serve God in the church again. So we need to be content in what we do. And I will be content with what I have. And that will allow me to share what I have to the fullest. I think it was J. Paul Getty of the very wealthy Getty dynasty was once asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. There'll always be somebody with more money, a bigger home, a newer car, a faster computer. For pastors, there'll always be somebody with a bigger church. I will say to you this morning, we have to let that go and have gratitude to God and be content with what we have, which for most of us is, much, is far more than we need. The trouble with greed is that we con ourselves into thinking that if we only had more, we would be able to share more. And that is not true. What brings contentment is holding what we have with a spirit of gratitude and an open hand. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthian church, remember, remember this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one should give what he's decided to give in his own heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. So our society has really lost touch with reality. The demands of rushing to accumulate more and more threatens to overwhelm us. And if we give in to his seductive shouts more than we know, we will damage our spirits. And as Edith Schaefer says, we will stain the inside of the cup. Some years ago, Richard Foster, who's a Quaker, wrote in his book, A Celebration of Discipline, thoughtful, thoughtful paragraph. He says, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led to this insane attachment to things. In our moments of weakness, we believe that things will bring us happiness. So we crave what we neither need or enjoy. We buy what we don't need to impress people we don't like. And when planned obsolescence takes over, psychological obsolescence takes over. I'm sorry, let me read that. When planned obsolescence leaves off, psychological obsolescence takes over. The mass media has convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. We need to speak the truth into that and say that it is our culture that is really out of step with reality. And so more than smoking will choke our lungs, more than trans fat may clog our arteries, greed will stay in the inside of our spirit and blacken our soul. There is an antidote. There is a remedy. It is to breathe the pure contentment that comes from the breath of God. So let's wrap this up. We began this series last October, I think it was. And I hope we found out that the Ten Commandments are anything but outdated. They're not irrelevant. On the contrary, they are a powerful challenge to being God's people in the times in which we live. I'll say to you this morning, very seriously, I thank you. I thank you for the attentive spirit that you've given this series. That encourages me more than you know. We've tackled some tough subjects along the road. And I say to you, thank you for listening well. These 10 words from God call us to a radical countercultural lifestyle as the people of God. And the more that the moral stage of our culture darkens and becomes distorted, the more important it will be for God's people to stand in grace, to let grace and truth shine, and to live out of his grace as his people. We all know that we live in challenging changing times. They're not for the faint-hearted or the fearful. We are again like Israel, living in a land filled with strange voices and seductive sounds. But there's another voice that calls to us. He speaks out of the fire in the mountain. His voice rises above the clamor and the din of our culture. 
He says, I and I alone am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of darkness, out of sin, and out of death. I am the God who stooped down and met you in grace at the cross. So you worship no other gods before me. Remember that you're made in the image of God. So all of life is sacred. He says to us, guard your marriage. Tell the truth. Don't lie. Don't covet. And live with contentment. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.